Well, good morning. I don't know if you noticed this, but um, I'm continually encouraged by our time of worship together, and I'm very grateful to Joe. I'm glad he's still up here for a minute. <laughs> this, come here, Joe. I'm just so grateful for Joe and the team of people that lead worship every week. When I, as I sit and I listen to that song and we sing that together, and I, I know what we're studying today in the book of Acts, and so does Joe, and he's just very, very purposeful about that. So just thank you, Joe. I didn't mean to keep you for too long, but just thank you, and we appreciate you. And I just appreciate being able to praise God together, um, and to do that in a way that is purposeful and intentional. And we're not just singing songs. We're singing songs that mean something. We're, we're singing those songs to the Lord, even the song that we just sang that the Spirit of God would do a work in us and change us and make us more and more like our Lord. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in the book of Acts. It was um, only a few months ago we had a bit of an electrical problem in our home. Um, Brooke, our youngest daughter, came to me and said, Dad, there's a plug in your room and it's buzzing. And um, that didn't sound good. And so I went in and I did what any self-respecting husband and father would do. Um, I got out my toolbox and I decided I would fix it myself. And so I, I took it apart, I took it out of the wall, I tightened everything back up, I put it all back together and it was no longer buzzing. And um, I was very proud of myself um, until Krista came into the room and said, did you shut off all the power to the living room? <clears throat> and I said, not intentionally. And it turned out that in fixing the outlet, I had effectively shut off power to about a quarter of the house, um, and, and I put away my toolbox. And in the spirit of the book of Acts, in um, giving to everyone as they have need, John Mino, who many of you know who attends here, he's not here this morning, but I have his permission to talk about him. John Mino, who actually has a gift uh, with electrical things, came to our house to fix our problem. And... Um, Here's where the story's going. When my son, Luke, who's five years old, found out that John was coming to the house to do some work, he ran into his room and he got out his plastic toolbox and he got out all of his plastic tools and he was going to help John fix the house. And so that Sunday afternoon, after church, John came over and John was working on our outlet and on our electricity, and Luke was sitting there with him, with his tools. Luke was watching him. Luke was asking him questions, and every once in a while, John would say, Luke, there's, um, there's some wire in my toolbox in the living room. Would you go and get that for me? And Luke would say, yes, and he'd run out into the living room and get whatever John needed, and he'd run back and give it to him. And John would say, Luke, I have a tool, and it looks kind of like this tool you have right here. Would you go out and get that for me? And Luke would say, yes, and he'd run out in the living room, and he'd get the tool, and he'd run back. See, John was doing real work, and Luke had plastic tools and no expertise, but they were doing the work together. John had invited Luke to be a part of what he was doing. John had invited Luke to see what he was doing. John had invited Luke to participate in what he was doing, and it brought real joy to Luke, and it brought real joy to John. They loved doing it together. John said, Luke, I'm going to do some work. Do you want to help? And Luke said, yes, I want to help. See, this is a picture of what we see in Acts. God is doing a work. God is changing the world. God is building his church, and he's inviting his children to help. 
That's the picture that we see in Acts. See, last week when we were in Acts, we looked at the life of Stephen. We looked at Stephen who's um, commonly described as a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Here was a guy who was helping in the local church, just doing work that needed to be done, meeting needs. This was also a guy who was out proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was doing that boldly and with power through the Spirit of God. We saw how his words were twisted and used against him. We saw how in a a rage, in a fury, he was stoned to death for what he was saying about who Jesus was and the implications that that had for his Jewish brothers and his Jewish fathers. And we looked at what it is that makes somebody willing to live for Jesus and what it is that makes somebody willing to die for him. That's such a significant thing. That's such a significant way to live and to die. And we looked at Stephen and we said, here's a guy who knew the word of God. And not only did he know the word of God, but he knew the story that is unfolding throughout all of Scripture, that all of Scripture cries out for a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus Christ. We looked at Stephen being filled with the Spirit of God and that because he was filled with the Spirit of God, then his ministry, his witness, the wisdom with which he made his case before his brothers, even the peace that he had and the compassion that he had in the face of death, were a result of the work of the Spirit in his life. That in fact, Stephen had been so transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ that when he dies, he looked just like him. And we said last week, as Stephen is being stoned to death, he commits his spirit to Jesus and he prays that God would not hold the sin against his brothers who are stoning him to death. He literally prays for the men and his heart breaks for the men who are killing him because they don't understand the love of God the way that he does. And they don't understand who Jesus was the way that he did. We keep saying that the book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people who are equipped with an irresistible message and they're doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen really exemplified that Stephen really showed that. He was not an apostle. This is not a guy who walked with Jesus. He's not a guy who was trained by Jesus. He's just a regular guy who's being transformed into the image of Jesus, into the likeness of Jesus through the work of the Spirit. And this morning we're going to see how Stephen's life and his death really became the catalyst for the the advancement of the gospel. Stephen's death really became the trigger that would send the message out beyond Jerusalem. And we're going to have to ask ourselves and consider our level of willingness to do the same. Are we willing to be messengers of the gospel in the way that Stephen was? So before we open our Bible this morning, I would just ask if you would pray with me this morning. Father God, would you meet us here this morning? And would you speak to us through your word? We're so grateful for this book and for these these people in this early church that we can look to as examples of people who were changed to be like you through the work of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would understand this morning what it looks like and what it means to surrender our lives to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 8? If you don't have a Bible, we have some for you in the aisles here. You're welcome to get up and grab one, or if you raise your hand, 
We will pass one down to you if you want that. Um, or you can just listen, that's fine as well. If you um, don't have a copy of God's Word or you don't have this one and you borrow ours, you're welcome to just keep it. That, that's our gift to you. So if you would like that, you're welcome to take that home with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, so way toward the end, New Testament. And if you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 916. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last week, we ended with the stoning of Stephen, and Acts chapter 8 picks up right out of that. Verse 1 said, and Saul approved of his execution. Remember, Saul is the man who they laid all their coats down in front of him. They laid down all their coats in front of Saul so that they wouldn't get the messy when they stoned Stephen to death. And it says here that Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, Stephen's death is kind of the tipping point. And from here on out, the Jewish leaders are going to go on the offensive. They're going to put an end to the message of Jesus. That is the plan. They're going to put an end to these people proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. It started with Stephen, and now it's, it's escalated beyond that. The incident with Stephen has kind of changed the situation for them, and now the followers of Jesus are going to be hunted down, and they're going to be arrested. And Saul, you're going to want to remember that name if you don't already know it, because it's going to come up again. Saul is leading the charge. Saul was there at Stephen's execution. He approved of Stephen's execution, and then after that, he becomes kind of the head of the persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and he's literally kicking down doors and dragging Christians off to prison, men and women alike. He's taking them all to prison where they're going to be tried, where they're probably going to be beaten, where some of them are going to be executed for their faith. Luke's words, he says, a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem, but look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Uh-oh, this has not had its intended result. They're trying to shut it down, shut down the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, stop the gospel from spreading, and look what happens. Those that are scattered are going out preaching the word. I'm reminded of when the apostles were brought before the Jewish leaders only a few chapters ago we read about that. And they were so mad at them, they wanted to kill them. And one of the older gentlemen in the group removes the apostles for a while, and he talks to his friends in that room. And do you remember what he says? He says, guys, we got to be really careful here, because if they're making this up, it will go away on its own. If this is of God, you will not be able to stop it, and you may find yourself opposing God. Well, guess what? They're going to try to stop it and it's not going to happen. Look what happens. They're saying <clears throat> the message is spreading. Um, it says, you know, in verse 8-1, they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This sounds really familiar to me. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? 8-1 says they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Chapter 1, verse 8, do you remember what it says there? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what Jesus charges them with before he goes back to be with the Father. <laughs> and look what's happened. 
The church has been in Jerusalem. Now the church is spreading to Judea and to Samaria. And next week, we're going to see it reach the end of the earth, at least what they would call the end of the earth. See, this, this persecution was intended to silence the gospel, and really all it's doing is spreading it. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So Philip, also not an apostle, like Stephen, he's a regular guy. In fact, he's one of the guys that are named when Stephen is named. Just a, a guy helping to serve in the church. He heads to Samaria to tell them about Jesus, going out from Jerusalem. The people of Samaria, you may know or you may recall, are historical enemies of Israel. These people, they really hate each other. But they, they have a view of the Old Testament that is common to both. And this is really a help to Philip because Philip is probably sharing the gospel the same way that Stephen did. And if you remember Stephen's argument last week, he really used the Old Testament to show them who the Messiah was. They believe in the Old Testament too. That means they're also expecting a Messiah, even though their beliefs are a little bit different. And so Philip uses the Old Testament likely the way Stephen did to say, hey, you remember Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like you from our brothers. You're expecting a Messiah too, and look how Jesus fulfills the prophecy. And notice what it says. It says, the people of Samaria paid attention to what Philip says. They heard what he said, and they saw the signs that he did, the miracles that were being performed, demons being cast out, people being healed. Like the apostles, like Stephen, Philip is performing all of these miraculous signs, not because he's a miraculous guy, but because he is filled with the Spirit of God and God is validating his work that he's doing by performing these signs and wonders. He's validating the message. And look at the result, verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of a Savior and a Messiah brings joy. It brings hope. And it brings healing, not just spiritual healing. In this case, literal healing is taking place. Verse 9, <clears throat> it's going to get a little more complicated than that. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Luke paints a portrait for us of Simon. Simon is a celebrity magician. And in this time that means something different than that would mean now. To us, celebrity magician is kind of laughable. <laughs> um, even the really good ones, we probably wouldn't just listen to everything they said. But you have to think about the context of this. Simon, it says, everyone pays attention to him. Everyone is amazed by him from the least to the greatest. He has this incredible following through these signs and wonders that he's doing. And he's claiming to be either like God or a God or have this God-like power. I think of Simon almost the way I think of the Wizard of Oz. 
not in like a funny way, in a way of here's somebody who has um, done these great things that has won over the hearts of the people, and so they'll do whatever he says. That's kind of how I see it. And it says that the people paid attention to him. It actually uses the same words for what they, they hear Philip's message in the same way. They paid attention to him. But it says why they paid attention to him. Did you catch that? They paid attention to him because he amazed them. He amazed them with what he could do. And then look at verse 12. Starts with a contrast. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It starts with this contrast. Here's what they used to believe. They used to believe in Simon and the, and the amazing things that he did. But when they heard from Philip and they heard about the kingdom of God and they heard about the person of Jesus Christ, they believed and they were baptized And even Simon himself, it says, believed and was baptized and then starts following Philip everywhere because he is amazed. Simon, the celebrity magician that spent his life amazing people, is now looking at what Philip's doing and saying, I've never seen anything like that before. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So here we have this large group of people, a large group of new believers who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. These are people who have heard the message of Jesus as their Savior. These are people that have heard that Jesus is the one that all of Scripture cries out for. These people have heard the message that Jesus is the one who's paid the price for their redemption. They've heard that Jesus is the one who invites them to be a part of God's family. They've heard that Jesus is the one that's restored their relationship to God that was broken because of their sin and now invites them into relationship with God. That Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for all of this time. But they don't yet have the Holy Spirit because it says he's not yet fallen on them. Now that's weird to me. That sound a little bit odd to you? Because it seems to me like they've followed all the rules. They, they believed in Jesus and they were baptized so they should have the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. Isn't that how it works? It seems to me that that's Luke's expectation as well because Luke calls specific attention to it. Like this is unusual. What is the reason for the delay? Certainly God can send the Holy Spirit. It's within his power to do so. So why the delay in the Holy Spirit? Well, remember who Philip is preaching to. Remember who it is that's just come to faith. Longtime enemies of Israel. Israel referred to the Samaritans as mongrels or dogs. They look down on them. They disdain them. And the Samaritans don't have much love for Israel either. These are not friends. They are truly enemies. This delay seems to be purposeful. God is withholding the Spirit for a reason. And perhaps it's that God wants the apostles to see the work that he's doing in Samaria. Perhaps it's that God wants the apostles to be there. 
He wants them to go there. He wants them to see them. He wants them to pray over them. He wants them to see and understand that he has now included them in the work that he's doing. And perhaps he wants the Samaritans to see that as well. Here are the apostles, the founders of the church from Jerusalem who have come to you and prayed with you and seen you receive the Holy Spirit and now you see that God is doing a work that's greater than being a Jew and greater than being a Samaritan. You are now a child of God. You are now a Christ follower. We together are Christians. Perhaps that's what God is doing here because God has invited the apostles into the work that he's doing. And he modeled it for them and he lived it out in front of them. And then he invited more people into that. We remember even last week we talked about the church had expanded so quickly, so many people had come to faith that they had almost nothing in common except for their faith in Jesus Christ. There are people that don't even speak the same language. Guys like Stephen and Philip who are having to care for people who only speak Greek. And now God is inviting the Samaritans into that family. And he's orchestrating events in a way that the apostles can see the work that he's doing. Come and see the work that I'm doing. And they have confirmation that God is doing a work here as well. God's family is growing. See, God doesn't need the apostles to come and lay their hands on them so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. God doesn't need them to do that. God can do that work himself. He's just inviting them to participate and to see the work. God's got the real tools and he's doing the real work and the apostles are there with their plastic toolbox and their plastic tools and God says, come and see what I'm doing. Do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to see how it works? Do you want to help? And if you want to help, I'll give you something to do and we'll both find joy in that. The story continues in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, soft-spoken Peter, always so calm. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Even if you don't know what all of that means, you get the tone of what Peter is saying, right? (laughs) And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. There are a couple ways to interpret what's going on in this passage. There are those who would argue that Simon was never truly a believer. In fact, most people would argue that Simon was never truly a believer. He's simply using, um, looking to use the, the trappings of Christianity to harness this new kind of power with which to amaze people, as he's always done. Looking to maintain his status as the amazing Simon with godlike power. There are other people who would argue that Simon is just a new believer who completely understands the way the Holy Spirit works and the way that God does things. There's not a lot of question as to what Peter thinks. Peter's response certainly gives us a clue as to where he thinks Simon's heart is. Because Peter says to Simon, you and your money can go to hell. That's, that's pretty much how it translates. And that's, he's not being crude. He's being literal. 
He's saying, your money can follow you to hell because that's where you're going with this line of thinking. Wow, it's pretty harsh. You and your money have no part with God. Your heart is not right before God and you'd better repent and hope that God forgives you. That's what Peter says to Simon. And then we look at Simon's response and he says, pray that none of the stuff you just said happens. <laughs> right? So he's got the right idea <clears throat> because all of that sounded bad. Right? And we can look at his response in one of two ways. Either Simon is so broken over this rebuke from Peter, and he's so distraught, and he has no idea how to approach God that he says, you pray for me that God would not do those things to me, like you said. Or he's just trying to get out of the consequences of his actions. He's saying, yeah, okay, pray that that doesn't happen. I didn't, I'm just, look, I'm just trying to get in on this thing. It looked cool what you guys are doing, and I want to be a part of it. And that looks powerful, and I'm willing to pay for it. People think one way or the other about Simon, and here's what I think. I think it doesn't matter. I think it doesn't matter whether Simon is truly repentant and regenerate or whether Simon is just trying to cash in and use the Holy Spirit for his own personal gain. Here's what matters. What matters is what Peter clearly states to Simon. The power of God, which is available to the followers of Jesus Christ and those who put their trust in him, is not for sale. You cannot buy the power of God. You cannot earn the power of God. It is not for show. It cannot be manipulated. That is the truth that we find in here. What matters here is that the Holy Spirit is available to those who have surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ. That's who the Holy Spirit is available to. It's the power of God to transform the children of God, to look like Jesus and to proclaim him. What matters is that the Holy Spirit is the marker. He is the identifier of those who belong to God and are his children. And he is the helper sent by God to help us to understand what it looks like to live a life that looks like him. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. We have to understand that. The end of our passage this morning, verse 25, says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Do you notice how our passage this morning is like sandwiched in the message and the proclamation of the gospel? Verse 4 said that they went about preaching the word, proclaiming Jesus. Philip goes to Samaria. Verse 25, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Everywhere they go, they proclaim Jesus. Everywhere they go, they declare him as the Savior. Everywhere they go, they bring joy. They bring hope. They bring healing through the good news of Jesus. And that persecution that was intended for them has had the opposite effect. It has not stifled the gospel. It has not squashed it. It's just spread it out all over the place, just as Jesus intended for it to be. The big picture of what we see in the first half of Acts chapter 8 is the message of God is advancing. The message of the gospel is going out. First it went to Jerusalem, now to Judea, now to Samaria, and soon to the end of the earth. And we see that as the message of God advances, it's advanced by regular people. These are not 
the apostles. These are not the guys who walked with Jesus. This is Stephen and Philip, two regular guys who want to be a part of what God is doing. And through the power of the Spirit that is changing them to look more and more like Jesus, they are proclaiming a powerful message and they're doing it with these signs and wonders and these amazing things. See, God is allowing those who have given themselves over to him and surrendered to him to participate in the work that he's doing. God says, I am doing a work. Do you want to help? And Philip says, yeah, I want to help. And God says, I need you to go and tell those people over, the, over there. And Philip says, yes, I'll do it. And he runs over there and he does it. God is doing a work. Do we want to help? That's the question that I think this passage begs of us as followers of Jesus Christ. God is doing a work. Do you want to help? Is it my desire to participate with God? Is it my desire to advance the message of the gospel? Is it my desire to display the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in my own life so that people would understand that there is true power that comes from relationship with God, the power to change us to be more like his son? Or am I just trying to work hard enough or give enough to the church or say the right things to avoid the consequences of my sin? Because I know I'm not right before God and I know I've got to do something and am I just trying to earn it or pay for it like Simon? Because like Simon, we can say that we believe and like Simon, we can be baptized and very likely like Simon, we can never actually surrender our lives to Jesus. We can say we believe. The Bible says, hey, the demons believe. We can be baptized and we can just get wet if we never allow the Holy Spirit to change us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We've never allowed the Spirit to transform us so that when God says, I'm gonna do a work, do you wanna help? Our answer is, how much do I have to do? I mean, I'm already doing quite a bit. And when am I done? How much is enough? When have I earned it? When have I paid for it? Are you allowing yourself to be transformed into the image of Jesus? The Holy Spirit is the marker. It's what identifies us as children of God. And the question is, is there any evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life at all? You're just doing all the right things. This morning, I think we do really well to dwell on the words of Peter. Repent. Repent. Not beat yourself up. That's not what that means. It means turn to God. Turn to God and say, I give up. I can't overcome my struggle with sin. I can't earn my way in. I can't buy my relationship with God. I can't. I can't do it. And many of us understand and know that reality. I cannot overcome the obstacles that are in front of me. I cannot do it. And praise God, that's the message of the gospel. God says, I know you can't. That's why I did it. You can't. I can. And I did The work is done. So give up. Put your trust in me. Surrender to me and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life and make make you look more like my son. I have a question for you this morning as we end. Do you find yourself excited about what God is doing and anxious to be a part of it? 
Do you find yourself excited about what God's doing and you just, you can't wait to be a part of it? Like Luke, you're waiting there with your toolbox for someone to come over and do work so that you can help in any way you can. You're excited about it. Or do you just feel obligated to live a certain kind of life that God might find acceptable? I would say this morning it's okay if you answer yes to either one as long as you understand what has to come from that. Praise God if you're excited to be a part of what he's doing and you're anxious to do it with him. Praise God for that. But if you're here this morning and you just feel obligated to do certain things or not do certain things so that God may accept you in the end, you don't understand him. You don't understand the gospel. And I'm convinced that this morning there are those in this room that are trying to earn their way in. They're trying to work their way to God. They're trying to make themselves acceptable to him. And this morning I would just say, give up. You can't. You can't. God can, and he did. And it's done. The work is done. So repent. Just turn to Jesus and say, I surrender my life to you. I want there to be evidence in my life of your working. I want you to change me to make me look more like your son. Whether you've said you believed and you've been baptized and you've been in the church for 30 years and you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I can't find any evidence of God's work. Because you've been pursuing your own agenda and you've been caught up in your own thing and you're so overwhelmed by your own sin that you just haven't allowed him in. You have suppressed the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Give up, surrender, let God do the work. That's the message of the gospel. If we do that, we get to advance the message. We get to be the people through whom God does a transforming work and shows himself to the world that says, I can change even that guy, even her. I can change and do a mighty work because I'm God. So that when God comes to us and says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to do a work. I'm going to change La Habra. Do you want to help? That we'd say, yes. What do you want me to do? And I'll do it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, which is powerful. We pray this morning that you would convict our hearts, Lord, that we would repent and turn to you. Lord, that we would surrender ourselves to you, that you might do a work and allow us to participate with you. We thank you that you ask us to help. We thank you that we find joy in that. We thank you that you find joy in that. Be with us this morning as we lift up praises to you. Amen.